Welcome to Common Ground Church, Rondebosch, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality, rooted in scripture and dependent on God's spirit. The book of James is rich in learning to know God's heart for his people and how to walk in obedience and faithfulness. Please continue listening for today's message. Right, I'm reading from James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 from the English Standard Version. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges his brother or sister speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is the one able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbour? This is the word of God. Thanks, Julie. One, two, there I am. Thanks so much, Julie. Did anyone else get a fright as soon as that video came on? Waiting for Julie to come read the word. It was like, doo-doo. Thought we were starting. It's like Netflix had just opened. I didn't know what happened there. Um, but hello, everyone. Great to be together. If I haven't met you before, my name is Garth. I'm married to Samantha. We've got a little girl, Katie. She's two years old. And it is great to be with you this morning. If you've joined us for the first time, you're here for the first time, I know it's school holidays, maybe you're visiting Cape Town. It's great to have you uh, with us. As a community, we've been going through the book of James and um, we find ourselves in chapter four. And we've seen that this, there's this big idea or this theme that runs through chapter four. And it could be summarized uh, in one point or one sentence. And that's humble dependence, humble dependence. And two weeks ago, we kicked off our little mini-series in chapter four, and Ian spoke to us about uh, this disordered love. He spoke to us about how we quarrel with one another and how this actually comes from the disordered passions that are within us. He spoke to us about what it means to be friends with the world, which in turn means that we at enmity with God. All of this coming from this disordered love, all of this from these passions, loving things, loving the world more than we love God. And last week, Jeff did a great job and he spoke to us about how James calls us to humbly submit to the Lordship of Jesus in our lives and how when we do that, when we humbly submit to his Lordship, we can see how true repentance leads to true change in our lives, true restoration in our lives. And this morning, we're gonna continue our need for humble dependence, but somewhat in a a different angle. And um, if I'm honest, James has really been up in our face, hasn't he, over this time? He's really been up in our face. In the evening meeting, we would say he's been up in our grill. You can put that in your logbook. That's what we would say. He's really been up in our grill over this time. And uh, he calls out these sinful actions, but he also gets straight uh, to the heart. He cuts straight to the heart. And my plan this morning, I always like to think of a question just to provoke us as we're thinking about the text. And this morning I was thinking about, uh, as I was preparing, I was like, yeah, it would be great to have a question up front. And I thought, I don't need a question because James has a question for us already. And what is that question at the end of our text? He says, but who are you to judge your neighbour? 
Who are you to judge your neighbour? Okay, I'm going to close in prayer and we're going to, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's right there and it's quite stark. Who are you to judge your neighbour? And um, it's a great question and it's a very rhetorical question, but it begs some reasoning. And I want to spend the rest of the sermon unpacking this text and helping us see what James gives us in this text as an adequate heart response um, to this question. And you see, throughout the book of James, it's evident that James sees the way that we treat one another as something of the true test of our relationship with God or how we view God, the way that we treat one another. He basically says, you want, you want to know the condition of your heart? Ask yourself, how are you doing with loving God? Therefore, how are you doing with loving others? Makes it simple. And so we see time and time again, he looks at the sinful action, actions of these Jewish Christians. He does the reverse diagnostic on the conditions of their heart. And then he calls them to walk humbly with the Lord, to live out their faith in God's way. Rinse and repeat, that's what he keeps doing. And so as we approach the text, it's no surprise that James is doing exactly that. He's gonna expose the sinful action but what he wants to get at is the reverse diagnostic at the condition of our heart. And he gives us some reasons into these sinful actions. He digs back into the heart. He says, where's this coming from? The four things we're gonna see from our text tonight, we're gonna to see him expose that sinfulness. He says, we're not to speak evil and be judgmental. And then he's gonna follow with the reasons and he's gonna tell us that we're not above the law. He's gonna tell us we must let the judge be the judge. And then he's gonna end with his rhetorical question of who are we to judge? Who are we to judge? And if I, if I could sum up the sermon or the beginning of the sermon, I think James, he would have almost like a half-time talk and he'd call in these Jewish Christians and say, let's get together here. And he would say this, he says, I just wanna tell you that there is nothing more arrogant than being judgmental and speaking evil against one another. And I wanna tell you this, it's worse than you think, because it's not just a problem with your tongue, it's a problem with our hearts as well. It's not just a problem with your tongue, it's a problem with our hearts as well. It's worse than you think. And as we unpack our text, this morning he's gonna show us that. Let's pray, we're gonna dive right in. Lord, thank you that we are, uh, your people gathered this morning, that we meet in your presence, that we desire to hear from you. We desire to hear from your word. And as we hear, as the scripture that Jeff read this morning, we pray, Lord, that your word would work in our hearts this morning, that it would not uh, come back void. We desire to increase in the revelation of who you are, your mercy and your grace. Come and do that this morning, we pray. Amen. Great, so first off, he says we're not to speak evil, we're not to be judgmental. Verse 11, he says, do not speak evil against one another. Brothers can be brothers or sisters. And first, when you look at this text, you can think speak evil, be judgmental. That sounds pretty hectic. That sounds pretty hectic, that's not me. But I'm so glad that this other person came this morning because they are so imperfect and they really need to hear this sermon. And I think if their heart changes, they would be such much better person. And that's what can go through our minds. And I'm just joking, but my point is, I think sometimes we let ourselves off the hook when it comes to speaking evil against someone or judging someone else. I think we let ourselves off the hook. And I would go as far as to say that I think, in my experience, I think this is one of the sins, as Christ follows especially, 
that we justify the most, that we find the most justification for. So I wanna be a little bit more descriptive about what James is actually talking about here. And um, the different types of judgmental and evil speech, there's destructive speech, there's, which kind of captures all, there's gossip, there's criticism, there's slander, there's lying about someone. But it's not just the type of speech we use, it's also how we use it, it's when we use it. There's a pastor named Paul Tripp, and he talks about this playing itself out in kind of three ways, three categories, and I found this so helpful, and so I wanted to speak to them. But the, there's three categories, and the first one that he says is that we could be judgmental or speak evil by speaking to ourselves. Now, that's speaking about other people or thinking about other people, but talking to ourselves. And this is an important one. Because what, what Paul Tripp's identifying here is he's saying that it's not just a thing of the tongue and how we speak to other people, that there's a deeper issue here in the conditions of our heart, to the fact of how we actually think about people, what is coming out, what is bubbling out of here. And so our self-talk about other people can be evidence of this poor heart condition, it can be critical, it can assume the worst. We criticize, we assume the worst of people in our head, and that comes from this heart, this pride, maybe some arrogance, some selfishness, maybe a bit of anger, whatever it might be that starts to percolate this. Do you ever, and I realized when I was preparing this sermon that this is gonna be a sermon, it's also gonna be a confession session for me, so just prepare your hearts as well, but do you ever have um, make-believe arguments with people in your head? <laughs> I do that all the time. Do you ever have make-believe arguments with people in their head? And I know, I'd, I often do it in the shower. I'll be sitting and I have these make-believe arguments and I know that I've done it because I've conditioned my hair like three times. <laughs> and, and what ends up, I mean, when you see this as a clean coat, then you know the condition of my heart is not doing well when, when, this, is, when this is starting to shine. But there's, <laughs> but there's something that happens where I wanna have this argument with people and uh, the worst thing about fake uh, arguments is that we point out the worst in people. We point them in the worst light. The nicest thing is I always win the argument. I always win the argument. But what's so terrible is that you become the hero of your own story. That's the most classical example of pride. Because you're not, you're not only falsely putting someone down, but you're incorrectly and falsely elevating yourself in the argument. It's the classic fruit of pride. And it feeds into that self-righteous, power-hungry evil that's inside of us. And another way we do this is that we can judge people silently. We won't celebrate that person. We can't celebrate with that person because of the judgment that's in our heart. We've made a judgment call in their lives. We put them in a box. And that roots all sorts of things in our heart. And then we find that actually there's a silent way of doing this where we just don't celebrate with them or celebrate them at any point. The second is we could also speak evil or be judgmental just directly to the person. Again, our heart's not in the right place. We can verbally attack people. We can belittle people. We criticize them. Maybe that's coming from a bit of jealousy, a bit of self-righteousness. Maybe it's from something that they've done, they've wronged us, and it's set us off into this self-justification. And um, have you ever, I mean, I've done this as well, have you ever almost verbally attacked someone but you actually don't know all the facts? You've filled in the gaps for yourself. You've filled in the gaps for yourself. And what you've done is you've built up your own case 
And the evidence that you've used is you've just assumed their intentions. You've assumed all the facts and all the assumptions that you've made. You've built up your case um, to go and speak to that person. And when you're speaking to them, you often find yourself not trying to listen, but just waiting for your time to speak. Because that's what you've created in your heart. That's the bar. That's the level that you've created in your heart that's come from pride. And you have this final judgment that you've put on their life. And all the time you're speaking, you're not trying to arrive somewhere. You have that judgment in your head and that is guiding the entire conversation. There was someone I needed to go speak to and I walked up to them and I was also for two hours sitting going, oh, this happened, that happened, maybe a little bit of the fake argument. And as I spoke to them, they were like, I just wanna say, I'm so sorry about that thing I did the other day. And I was like, you can't be sorry. I wasted two hours of my life. I can't get those two hours back. I was sitting in my judgmental jacuzzi over here and then I come to city and you just apologize. And I built up this whole case. I built up this whole case and evidence and assumptions and intentions. And that's what had happened. Third way he talks about, he says, we could be speaking to other people about other people or about another person. Otherwise described as gossip, as slander. This could include complaining about someone. We could speak about others' failures, shortcomings, their sin with other people. We can share confidential personal information with someone with the wrong intent. And, and here's, I think, when it comes to describing this, this is where we get, I think, to the heart of it. Because we often dress this up or we couch it in godliness. We often use good things or godly things as disclaimers to how we justify this. Often, sometimes we'll say, oh, I'm just worried about that person. I just wanna let you know, I just, I'm just worried about that person. This is why I need to tell you all this information. Or the other way, I thought it would be good for you to know. I thought it would be good for you to know. Now there's information, all these things that we need to tell people. There are some people, it's good for them to know certain things. But I'm talking about when we use this as the disclaimer. When the person doesn't need to know and we go, I think it would be good for you to know. What we're basically saying to them is, I think that you could join me on the high horse of being judgmental. And so I'm gonna, I thought this would be good for you to know as well. And we often share with people that think that what's happening there? There's something of going, I just thought that you and I are really important and that we need to know. And that's what comes out of our hearts. That's what comes out of heart. That's what comes out of God's heart, out of my heart. And How about the classic one of, we really, I just think we need to pray for this person. We just need to pray for this person. And you know what ends up happening? You know why we know that that's not true? Because we don't end up praying for the person. We don't end up praying for the person. It's not out of concern, it's out of sharing information. And we come up with godly disclaimers, we couch these things in godliness to justify the transactions of information and things we wanna speak because instead of looking at our own hearts, it's easier just to live within it and play the game. And that's what happens inside of us. And here's the bottom line. How we speak about someone matters, whether directly to them or to others, and I'd go as far as to say how we think about people and self-talk matters. It's no wonder, it's no wonder that James spends two out of five chapters talking about the tongue and the destruction of the tongue. He talks about a flame and how it turns into a forest fire. Two out of the five chapters, that's what he's talking about. And this 
this also there's the reality that this causes devastation. It causes devastation. It brings a wedge between relationships. It tears down reputations. It breaks trust. Think of how many friendships, marriages suffer because there's no longer spaces of love and appreciation and grace and joy, but it's tainted with bitterness and criticism and judgment. It's more about the records of wrong that are more regular than the initiatives of grace. It causes devastation, it causes destruction. And when we're talking about being judgmental, it's important that we do add a few um, godly disclaimers. I feel like the phrase being judgmental gets thrown around in the wrong place sometimes. I think it sometimes also gets uh, misdiagnosed and it's used as a a little bit of an empty defence. And we need to realise that there are moments in Scripture where we are called to make judgment calls on people's character or uh, their sinfulness. But this is done in a holy way. I mean, James has been doing it to these Jewish Christians the whole year. He's been doing it to us. I feel like I've been rinsed in a beautiful way. And there's just two examples I want to touch on. The one is um, what James is not talking about is, is calling each other to more godly accountability. That's not what he's talking about. Scripture says iron sharpens iron and so we sharpen uh, one another. There's a lovely way that as a community, we get to mirror God's ways to our character and to our actions and it helps us to grow in holiness. It's a good thing. I think of that Proverbs, better rebuke from a friend than a kiss from an enemy. That's not what James is talking about. We're also not talking about speaking God's truth in love. And uh, this in some ways gets to the heart of the issue because when we speak God's truth in love, we're not relying on our truth, on our standards, on our judgment. It's a recognition of him being the highest authority, the rightful judge. And there's times when we will be called to honour God above people, but we still do so lovingly. We speak God's truth, not our own, and we do it in his way and how he's called us to. But there's holy intention in that. And so there are those times There are those times. There's times where sober holy judgment is good, but it usually comes from a heart that ultimately wants to honour God, sees Him as the highest authority, and sincerely seeks God's best for people, a group of people, person, situation. And so we look onto the text. James makes it clear as well that we're not above the law. Gives us another reason. We're not above the law. Have you ever heard of the phrase, the rule of law? The rule of law. Some of us may have, some of us may not. If you haven't, the rule of law basically implies that no one is above the law. No one's above the law. Every person is subject to the law, including people who are the lawmakers, law enforcement, officials, judges, presidents. No one is above the law. It's firmly entrenched in our constitution. And the whole point of imposing the rule of law is to stop tyranny, dictatorships, stop the abuse of power, especially in countries where there's been abuse of power. And this constitutional philosophy is a protective mechanism, really, and it's been around since the beginning of time. It's been around since the beginning of time. Aristotle has quoted it before. They found it in writings, uh, 5000 BC from, uh, from the Greeks. It's been there, this sense, this protective mechanism of no one being above the law. And the reason that I bring this up 
is because this principle, this protective mechanism, makes it so evident that through the ages there is something in the hearts of humans that are prone to want to sit on the judgment seat and be above the law, not under the law. It's there. It's there. That's why this is needed. When it comes to following rules, when it comes to being under authority, there's a default resistance in us. We enjoy the power of being our own lawmakers, setting our own standards, being our own judge, being the judge of others. It's in our operating system. Whether that's a king, a queen, president on a throne, whether it's our actions, our words, from the deception of our hearts, it's there. And that's why we can see James gone to say, says the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but the judge. And, and what law is he speaking about here? Well, I'd make a case that he's, he's actually speaking about the royal law. It's James references chapter two, verse eight, where he says, that if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. He's quoting Leviticus 19. And the royal law is basically how Jesus sums up the whole of the Mosaic law into his kingdom of love, into his fulfillment of the law. There were lawmakers, they were trying to test Jesus and they said, well, you've got the Mosaic law, now you've arrived as the Messiah, explain to me, how do we make sense of this? What is the most important law? He says, let me sum it up for you. And in Matthew 22, he says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great command and the second is, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The law is summarized and simplified into love God and love people. It's no wonder that James would use this as the litmus test to our heart condition through his whole book. Look at what you're doing. I'm putting the litmus test on you. Let's see what's in your heart. Humble dependence before the king. And also what he's saying is, what he's getting to here in the text, he's saying judging another person is the clearest evidence that you're not abiding in God's law, but actually you think you're above it. It's the clearest evidence of this. And James makes it clear, it's sinful because it breaks that royal law. You're not loving one another, but it also takes the right of judgment that only God has. It takes the right of judgment that only God has. Is the arrogance of your judgmental attitude comes from thinking that you're above the law. It's not just a violation against other people. It's a violation against God. It's a violation against God. And that's the problem. We put ourselves in the judgment seat. We try to replace God as the ultimate judge. It's a, this arrogance, this pride leads us to the spiritual blindness that elevates us above God and His way. And, and James said that this, this judgmental heart, this is evidence of it. And like he said from the beginning, I'm telling you it's a deeper, deeper problem. And that's why James says to us, we need to let the judge be the judge. We need to let the judge be the judge. He says to us, there's only one lawgiver, lawmaker and judge. And then he puts us in, his, in our place with that rhetorical question. It says, there's only one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and destroy, but who are you 
to judge your neighbour. It doesn't just affect the way we speak to others and how we deal with others. It also just changes the way that we view God. It changes the way that we view God. Isaiah 33, 22 says, it says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, the Lord will save us. And this, this is the truth of it. Jesus is the sovereign, perfect judge. He decides who he saves, who he does not save. His judgment is the highest discretion. It is fair, it is perfect. And here's the thing, it's not subject to appeal because it doesn't need to be because he is perfect. He is trustworthy. He's not like other presidents or rulers. He doesn't make imperfect calls. He doesn't seek his own agenda. He doesn't need the rule of law because he is the fulfillment of the law. And he judges with all his wisdom and with all his righteousness. John 5.30 says, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my will, but the will of him who sent me. And the reality is, before a perfect and just God, we all fall short of the requirements. Requirements not only of the law, but we fall short of the righteousness that we need to be before a holy God. And actually, the judgment over all our lives should be condemnation should be condemnation. Jesus has every right to condemn us, but what does he do? He instead offers mercy and grace by going to the cross. He pays the price and extends grace to us. Romans 8.1 says, therefore now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Instead of condemnation, we receive grace, we receive mercy. He covers our shame. A God who knows every true sinful fact and thought about us. Knows everything about us. All knowing. And yet he still offers mercy and he offers grace. Gives us the judgment we don't deserve. And that's why James can end off so rhetorically by saying, but who are you to judge? But who are you to judge? You see, when we realise that we have the perfect judge who is merciful to us, whose law is perfect, who doesn't condemn us, who offers mercy, we realise that we definitely are not perfect. We don't have the wisdom, we don't have the righteousness to be the lawmaker when we compare ourselves to God. We don't even have all the facts half the time. We don't even have half the facts. Jesus knows everything. We're just as sinful and imperfect as everyone else around us. And our only hope is the merciful judge. And before I was a pastor, I was in law. And one of the things that we learn in criminal law is that when there is an accused, um, someone who's been accused of a crime, when they go to trial and they're unrepresented, they don't have an attorney, they don't have an advocate representing them, that what judges will do is that they know that they have a constitutional right to a fair trial. And so what they'll do is that they would almost, in a way, make sure that they understand the law, understand the evidence, understand what's before them, and in a way, make sure that they stand as almost a defense to the prosecution, because the prosecution is gonna bring the case. Their goal is to make sure on everything that they have that this person goes to jail. 
And what would happen is, is that the judge, in a way, would stand to this person's defense. And it happens quite often that that person thinks that they're guilty of a crime where maybe they're not actually guilty of a crime. And it happens more than you think. Because that person, say for instance, comes and says, um, well, are you guilty of murder? And that person goes, well, this person died at my hands, so I must be guilty of murder. And what happens in that moment is the judge says, just explain to me what happened again, and let's look at the evidence again, and let's hear the prosecution's case, and that's not very strong. But it seems like you were under threat and under abuse and under a whole bunch of stuff and that your life was in danger and that you acted out of that because that's called self-defense. That's not murder. Yet this person was sitting going, but this is what's happened. And what did the judge do? They've taken everything that they have before them. They know all the role players and everything. And they've stepped into the defense of this person to say, actually, let me tell you where this is on the law. Here's my point, here's my point, is that that accused that's standing there is going, thank the Lord that I didn't judge myself and that, he, that that person judged me. Thank, thank the Lord that I didn't judge myself. And what James is saying here, he's saying, who are you to judge? We're sitting in the accused dock and we're going, he is all knowing. He knows everything. He is all wise. He is righteous. He is holy. He is merciful. I don't even want to judge my own life. Never, never mind someone else's life. Let the judge be the judge. Let the judge be the judge. And James gives us this reality check in our hearts. He says you need to get down off the judgment seat and let the judge be the judge. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And the, and the point of this text is not that we just kind of watch our tongues a little bit more in the future when we're speaking about others, although we should. But I don't think that's what's, what's James getting to here. The point of the sermon is that we recognize the sinful pride in our hearts and we repent before the merciful judge, that we ask him to give us a deeper revelation of his lordship and his mercy and his grace and that in turn, we'd humbly submit our ways and our words to Him because, man, we are so undeserving and we don't know half the facts or half the story. And we want the judge to be the judge because He's the royal king that has a royal law of mercy and love. And when we understand that, when we get that, when that takes root into our hearts, man, suddenly we are able to honour and encourage others. We're able to... And in a way, I was speaking to someone earlier, in a way, we're almost able to let things go. We're able to let things go when we understand that. I think it's Psalm 133. And it talks about um, unity between brothers and sisters being like oil down the beard of Aaron. And basically, in that whole description, it could be summarized like this. Unity amongst people, godly unity amongst people is the fragrance of the royal law. Unity amongst people is the fragrance of the royal law. And what James is also talking about, he's not going, well, hopefully if we get this, we'll just carry on and watch our tongues and 
that will be it. It's not because the transformation that we have in the mercy of God, when it captures our heart, it's not that we just stop not speaking about other people. It's not that it um, causes the judgmental kind of um, disillusion in our lives. Um, What it actually does is it causes us to step into moments and to encourage. We encourage, we become for unity. We speak to God, about, we speak to people about God, about His ways. And I mean, we live in a time where it is so hard to encourage people. And encouragement is not flattery. It's not just trying to be nice to make people feel nice. It's stepping into a moment and calling out the truth and the grace in people's lives or into situations to remind us about who He is. That's what it is. And so when we step into these moments, it's not about, I must not be judgmental, I must not be judgmental. It's no, what is the heart of God that I would love him, that I would honor him in the situation and that I would love people? Well, I'm gonna spend my days calling out and encouraging the truth of God and grace into situations, into people's lives, not to point towards myself, not because I want a people please, but because I want you to see him, I want you to see his law. And let me tell you, I'm not the judge, you're not the judge, but he is the judge. And I think, there's probably a couple of evidences that we see in the lives of a humble heart that truly trusts the Lord that would love others. And here's a couple of things that we'll probably see. A judgmental, condemning spirit is replaced with the mercy, grace, and trust. A judging, condemning spirit is replaced with mercy, grace, and trust. Also, a humble heart keeps giving undeserved grace because they know what they've received. Their heart's humbled because they know the mercy that they've received. A humble heart points others to his law. It doesn't create its own. It doesn't create its own law. We point to God and his ways because we don't actually trust our own. We don't see ourselves as the highest authority. We don't see ourselves as the highest authority. A humble heart says, I don't know the full story, but I trust the one that does. I don't need to be part of that conversation. I don't need to know all the facts. There is one who is all-knowing, and I trust him. I trust him. He's a just judge. A humble heart leaves any injustices they face in the hands of the judge. A humble heart leaves any of the injustices they faced in the hand of the judge, which means we get to love and support his justice and we don't need to create our own. It takes away the vengeance. It takes away the holding on. It takes away us having to weigh the scales ourselves. We leave it to the judge. We leave it to the judge. And lastly, and I think this one's an important one, it's earlier in our chapter, it says a humble heart has a deep trust in knowing that if I submit in humility to his lordship, that he would exalt me in his own timing if he wishes to do so. If he wishes to do so. I don't lift myself up, I lift his name higher. And he would lift me up in his own time and in his own way if he wills it. I don't need to lift myself up and I don't need to drag others down to find my place. My coordinates are fixed in the judge who is the one true judge. We are inadequate judges. We are inadequate judges. We need to let the judge 
the merciful judge. Be the judge. And we're gonna, we're gonna go to the communion table this morning, um, but I just wanna finish with this last point as we head into communion. Um, when it comes to speaking about humility, trust or faith and mercy, I think we don't need to look further than Christ's example as he walked on this earth, as he would endure uh, the cross on our behalf. We can look to him. And um, this judgmental, self-righteous attitude, we often see it work itself out in the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawmakers in, um, in the Gospels and in Scripture. And um, have you ever thought about the fact that it was gossip and slander that would be the starting point of sending Jesus to his death on the cross? that it would be gossip and slander that would be the starting point that would send Jesus to the cross. In the scriptures we see, uh, in the gospel, or the gospel of Matthew, we see um, Jesus and his disciples, they're eating grain in the field on the Sabbath and the Pharisees come and they see this and they are just furious. Pose some questions to them. After that, Jesus goes on on the Sabbath and heals a man with a withered hand. And they get even more furious with them. Ask him a couple more questions. How can Jesus be doing this on the Sabbath? And you see, because these Pharisees had worked so hard to keep up the moral high ground and the law, they were puffed up with their self-righteousness, their pride. They couldn't even see that the Messiah had come, that the kingdom of love had come. They were too focused on the law. They couldn't even see that a hand had been healed. They were missing it because of what was in here and because of what they had built up. And let me tell you, when the Messiah comes and the kingdom of love is here, that breaks away any religious ladder. And when the religious ladder is gone, their whole world comes crumbling down. The standards, everything, the ladder that had been built up in here comes crumbling down. It's the ultimate threat. And throughout Jesus' ministry, they would grumble against him. They would question him. They weren't inquisitive, I can promise you. They thought they knew better. And they would question him and they would provoke. And they would provoke. And after he would heal this man with the withered hand. This is what it would say in Matthew 12, 14. It says, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. In other translations it says, and they got together and they conspired how they're gonna destroy him. How they're gonna destroy him. That was the state that their hearts were in. That was the threat that he brought. If you ever doubted whether gossip or slander or speaking evil against someone causes devastation, I think let's always remember this moment of the part it played in sending Christ to the cross. And eventually their plan would work. Even one of the disciples would conspire against him. They would hold a council and they'd falsely accuse him of blasphemy, which ironically was the very thing that they were doing. And they would hand him over then to the Romans to do the dirty work. And he would also, he'd go before people, a jury, if you'd have it. And he would be incorrectly judged there as well. Probably find that the slander and all of that had spread. And he'd be incorrectly judged there. And he'd be sent to the cross. 
And while he would go to the cross, he'd be reviled, he'd be slandered, he'd be tortured as he marched up Calvary Hill. All the while not being defensive, not acting out in sin. In fact, most of the time not saying anything at all, but being obedient and trusting in the one true judge the whole way. I wanna read a verse from 1 Peter 2, and you don't have to read it out loud, but I'd love you to read it with me as we go through it. It says, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And we've got to know that that sinful heart that was in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in the council, in the jury, every person that was pointing the finger up to Calvary's hill is in us. And that's what James is getting to us, to us this morning. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's not just a matter of the tongue. Understand this. And Christ in humble submission would all the while in humble obedience trust the one true judge. He would give us the penultimate display of the royal law and His kingdom of love and mercy would be put on display as He would lay down His life for us. He didn't fight back. You wanna know what humility is? That's humility. That's humility. When you trust the one true judge, when you let Him be the judge, and when you submit your life to Him, and you allow that in turn to change the standards and the wiring in your, op- in your operating system, to not allow you to be above the law, but to be an advocate of His mercy and His grace that He's been so undeserving. And when we take the elements this morning, what what Jesus would say is He would take the bread, He would take the juice, and He would say, do this in remembrance of me. And what He's saying is, remember, remember what this means, remember what I've done my body broken for you, my blood that has been shed for you. As you take this, remember what I've done, the mercy and the grace that we have received. And maybe as we take this this morning, there's something of repentance needed in our heart. As I've been preparing this sermon, I've been prepping and repenting, prepping and repenting. That's what's been happening. Because that's what the Word of God does. That's what the Spirit of God does. And so as you take the elements this morning, maybe it's something of a repentance. Lord, I've placed myself on the judgment seat that's rightfully yours. I need to let you be the judge. I've judged others with insufficient standards to my own standard. Maybe we've just cheapened the grace of God and the mercy of God. And we'd have a deeper revelation this morning. And let us remember Let us remember the mercy, the grace so undeserved that we've received. 
Let's bring our hearts in humble submission before the Lord this morning. And let, let it instill a confidence that we have the judge or we're letting the judge be the judge in our lives. That we are not the judge. We're gonna to come to the tables. If you're not a Christ follower, maybe here for the first time, you can feel free to let this moment pass you by. Maybe you just wanna contemplate these words, these truths that I've been speaking about this morning. But for those of us that know this mercy, this love so well, let's come and freshly remember, let's do business with the Lord this morning. Let's come forward, let's take communion and then the band's gonna lead us in a song after that.